Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Juan Carlos Silva, who is joining us from Porto, Portugal. He is the CTO of Doist, the team behind the app called Todoist. Gonzalo, welcome to Maintainable. Hi, Robbie. Nice to meet you. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics that a software code base is being well-maintained? Well, uh, that we could be talking for that with, about that for a few hours, I guess. The first trait that I think is pretty common is when there is an um, understanding from most of the stakeholders that a code base needs to be nurtured uh, over time, right? Like, I think a lot of companies focus a lot on shipping, and that's important, and we'll talk about that a little later. But, you know, the code itself will grow, will mature with the company, and it will need attention. It will need explicit time. So I typically like to recommend that people read up on Lehman's and Bellady's laws of software evolution because they've been around for, what, 40, 50 years? And there's, I think they're super insightful about how software evolves, uh, and specifically how the stakeholders evolve with the software. And specifically, there's this law, I think it's law number two or three, that says uh, when software evolves, its complexity increases unless explicit work is done to maintain and reducing it, reduce it. So acknowledging this is, I think, super important. Because when you start a new project, when you start a greenfield project, it's super easy to just like write new code all the time, right? And, and not have to deal with that much complexity. But when you've had software running for a few years, growing in complexity, the requirements have changed, uh, the original ideas and assumptions that the development team had probably didn't pan out and they had to make changes on the fly, they will need time to, you know, just overall improve quality. So really having that explicit a time to refactor and to improve things, I think it's really critical for long-term success of, of, of a code base that's well-maintained. What was the name of that? Is that, was that, a, is that a book that was published? You said, was that Lehman's? And... Uh, no, no, it's just like a, a small set of laws. It's Lehman's and Bellady's laws of software evolution. I can leave you a note by the end of this talk so that you include it in the show notes. Uh, they're, they're very uh, simple. There are seven laws. They're, they're short and concise, but they were written so many years ago. And, you know, Something that's 50 years old, but you read it today and it feels 100% applicable is always kind of a magical feeling, right? So it's, I guess, legacy thinking. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I, I had not heard of that one before, so I feel like it's been off my radar. So yeah, definitely we'll find that and include that in the show notes for everybody. You know, you mentioned, you know, thinking about how organizations need to be thinking about long-term maintainability, maintenance type work. I think of how organizations, like, let's just take a, a typical organization that has an office, there's a physical space that needs to be taken care of and maintained. It's just a physical space where people work at. And, you know, as someone that's built a lot of software for different companies over the year, myself and, you know, you, you as well, but me on maybe on the consulting side where there's, there's this idea quite often that you build it and it's kind of done because you meet those needs and it'll just keep running indefinitely. I find that it can be difficult to sometimes explain that process to stakeholders about, well, you, you know, like trying to use some other examples. You know, you bought that computer a long time ago because so you can run that thing on your desktop app. Well, that's no longer works anymore. You had to get a new laptop or a new computer and those older versions don't work so you had to upgrade those things. It's not always super clear for them, I think, to understand like, well, how much of an investment am I making to build the initial product? 
versus what's the long-term cost. I sometimes wonder how much software would actually get developed if they, people knew what the long-term costs were actually going to be. Oh, it's a $150,000 project to build this thing. But over the next 10 years, you're going to spend a million dollars on it. That, that, I don't feel like that's often the conversation that a lot of stakeholders are hearing or, or contemplating. But, but I think it's just like that long-term cost there. How, how have you handled those types of conversations or what sort of advice would you give to people on trying to explain that once you know there's a post-release life cycle to manage? Well, I think, I mean, in my case, I've been pretty lucky because at Todoist, at least, we are all looking at the long term, right? Like we have this whole philosophy that we don't have an exit strategy, that we are in this for the long run. And this translates to basically all of the corners of the company, including the software side of the company. So it's actually rather easy to have a conversation with non-technical stakeholders uh, saying, you know, we need to go slower for now so that we can go faster later on so that we don't explode later on. And this is a concept that everybody understands because everybody's thinking in a five, 10 year time frame, right? And actually something you mentioned, uh, I think it's spot on about consultancy. It also applies to non-consultants in our field, I think, because the turnaround time of most software engineers in on most companies, it's actually very short, right? It's probably three to four years. I don't know the actual stats, but if you look around and talk to people, you'll realize that most people uh, you know, switch jobs every three to four years. And in some ways, I don't think that helps creating a long-term maintainable mentality, right? Because you usually come in, you work on some greenfield project, and as you're entering the true maturity state, you leave and then you go work on something else. So I guess in many ways, you don't ever get to exercise those muscles of, you know, how do you actually maintain a code base for 10 years, for 15 years, for 20 years? Because there's a different set of skill sets who are helpful in helping you succeed and navigate this kind of work. It's interesting, you know, thinking about how, you know, my team has kind of evolved from building new products for, for startups back in, you know, 50, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, we did a lot of that. And, and I think the last 10 years, it's mainly been taking over and extending, updating existing applications. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, it's a very, can be a lucrative aspect and, you know, cause you've, I didn't intentionally fall into that world. Like, oh, I'm going to go out and set up to do that. It just kind of like, oh yeah, we've had enough experience now. We can definitely take over existing things and be pretty proficient and quick at helping getting some good results for those clients. Because there's a lot of, there's a common story of them losing their original developers for, you know, whether they left or not. And maybe they bounce around a couple of different freelancers and now they're ready to maybe work with a slightly larger team, but they're not ready to say hire their, their own team yet because they're not maybe naturally a product or a software company, I suppose, in terms of managing software engineers. I, you, you mentioned something about how Duist doesn't have an exit strategy. And I'm, I'm reminded of, a, in the agency world, there's this fellow named uh, Blair Ans who wrote a book about just the how we sell agency-type work. doesn't matter that's it's not software-specific, but one of his laws is like, what would you do differently today if you knew that this was the last job you ever had? How would you change running your business you were you're going to do this until the day you die, and like now I'm curious if you had that mentality as a software developer. This will be the last code base you ever work on. How do you live with that? Like, what are you, what sort of decisions would you start making today that you wouldn't if you knew that? Like, I might be able, I might just walk away from this at some point. Do you find that you think that the the code bases that you're working on right now are going to be around in 20 years, or do you see like the the product actually potentially getting rewritten? Mm, that's a good question. I actually never thought about it in these terms. So, um, but I definitely see the code bases we have right now existing in 20 years. So <clears throat> one of the things that I was actually hoping we could discuss a little bit today 
is that I am fairly skeptical of, you know, full rewrites or drastic changes. I think, you know, a lot of people in the industry have been burned by this uh, in many different ways. And honestly, I have been through this myself. And I think, you know, in the end, you're trading a set of known problems for another set of unknown problems, which is uh, not usually a great uh, deal for you. And I was also listening to, to some of your podcasts earlier. And I remember you telling a story of a five-year-old code base, which would take 10 years to rewrite. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting because it's a, it's, it's a good example of, you know, how rewrites, honestly, if you really think about them, they are usually, not always, I don't want to paint a black and white picture, but they are usually a bad idea. Although I get it, it's uh, motivating to think about it because you get to start from zero, right? It's a greenfield project again, so that, and that's super exciting. But something that I'm a lot more interested in is embracing strict guidelines of continuous improvement. So I really like... James Clear's Art of Continuous Improvement. It's like, that's the name he gives to it. It's, he's the author of the Atomic Habits book. This is more about people, right? Where, where he defends this notion of 1% better every day, but I really think this applies to code as well. So for example, imagine you're dealing with a legacy code base that has a lot of problems and you detect, you know, you need to re refactor the architecture so that you can add tests to it. You know, maybe instead of uh, going all in and working on this really tough problem and, be, you know, this is going to be frustrating for someone, for, for sure. What if you gate pull requests or changes in a way that all of them need to improve, even if by 0.01% test coverage, for example. So you don't really enforce, you don't stop the world to rewrite, you don't, you just make sure you have this very easy bar to hit, right? And you make sure everybody needs to hit it on a daily basis. The thing is, after some time, after a year or two, you're going to see really big changes. They're just not generally going to frustrate anyone and they will ensure you get to keep your business running, which is, I think, another super important point of well-maintained code. Well-maintained code is code that sells, right? So code that doesn't sell, code in a product that does not sell is not, I mean, the code can be the best code in the world, but if you're not building a business out of it, it's pretty useless. I mean, you know, there are exceptions around that with open source and stuff, but usually, you know, generally speaking, you need your code to sell. So objectively, bad code that sells is better than great code that does not sell. So that's also something to keep in mind. Do you find that there's you know, I want to dig into processes a little bit as well, but you know, you, you mentioned uh, like in software engineer retention. You know, like maybe, you know, I think while we don't have the exact data in front of us, but the, like say three to four year turnaround, are you finding that um, in your experience that there's a correlation to how well organized the code and processes around managing the code are help maybe improve the, or increase the length that people want to stick around versus people being like, all right, I need to go somewhere else because the technical situation that we're dealing with is just a little too cumbersome for me and, and it's holding me back from reaching my best potential as a software developer. I'm not entirely sure because the, the truth is, you know, I could, we obviously have very long-term code bases at Duist. Uh, we, we, we think a lot about these topics, but we also, I think, have a pretty unique company culture outside of engineering itself. You know, we're fully distributed. We communicate almost only asynchronously. We have a strong set of company values, which I think are a bit different from most of the industry. So I think it's a little bit hard to dissociate everything and just do an analysis based on uh, how we approach software development. We do have an amazing retention of employees. It's pretty different from most of the industry. 
but I can't, you know, it would be disingenuous of me to attribute most of that to the way we develop software because I really don't know. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take a moment to learn a little bit more about um, what products does Doist uh, produce? So we, we have two main products, uh, Todoist and Twist. Uh, Todoist is probably the, the best known to-do list task manager for individuals and small teams. We've been around for since 2007. At the time, it was a side project of the founder and CEO. So, you know, it's been quite some time, 13 years. It will be 13 years this year. Twist is a much more recent uh, product. It's just a few years old, and it stems from our own frustration of with you know the way kind of like we're expected to communicate in companies. So as I said, we've always been fully distributed. And of course, we got on the Slack bandwagon like everybody else, but we were actually struggling a lot with the real-time everything, uh, FOMO, etc. So we actually decided to take a somewhat radically different approach. I think this was way back in 2014 when we started discussing this. Focused a lot more on asynchronous communication so that we could, you know, just manage our time a lot better and manage the expectations a lot better. And it was really nice to see some concepts come out since then, like, for example, deep focus, because they are truly aligned with our thinking around communication, right? Like if we were stopping before every half hour uh, to check on Slack or get a notification here and there, it would really break our ability to deeply focus. And we really wanted a tool that allowed us to communicate it synchronously. But not only that, it basically incentivized this kind of behavior. It's, you know, it was explicit about not, uh, you know, feeding the FOMO of real-time communication. And that's why we built Twist. So Twist is basically a communication app for teams that focuses on asynchronous communication. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at that. I'm familiar with Todoist, but yeah, I'm not familiar with Twist yet. If you wouldn't mind, I know that you're, you have kind of like a somewhat unique story around how you became the CTO. How did, where did you start in that life cycle of the product? Yeah, that's that's an interesting story, I think, because I started at Doist as a freelancer. So um, very early on, you know, this, this vision of a fully distributed company, it's actually very, very much a mirror of the founder's way of looking at companies. And in fact, in, in the very beginning, he tried to build a company in a very, uh, I would say, uncommon way, which was he had a, he hired a bunch of freelancers, designers, uh, developers, and he was trying to build a company like this. So, you know, just working with freelancers and he was basically almost the only permanent person in the company. This didn't work for many reasons. One of them being there was not enough involvement, right? Like if you're a freelancer, you don't have the same involvement as if you are an employee building something every day. But I was one of those freelancers. And so when, when he kind of like changed his mind and wanted to actually have, you know, hire actual people. I was one of the first people who got hired uh, at the time as an Android engineer. And then I would very much say that the whole evolution has been very organic. We never really knew what we were doing. We probably don't know what we're doing now, but it's kind of working. So uh, that's, that's uh, interesting. But, in, you know, I was an Android engineer. As the Android team grew, we needed a leader for the team, so I became the head of the team. And as the engineering organization grew, and we were about, I think, 25 people at the time, we realized that we kind of needed somebody to help align and, uh, you know, bring some uniformity to the whole engineering organization and make sure nobody, you know, people were not working in silos. And so that's basically how I became CEO of the company. Um, the role didn't exist before me, so it was, it has been a 
very humbling experience to say the least. <laughs> nice. And how long, how long, you mentioned that the organization started back in 2007. When did, when did the Android work first start off back then? 2012. We built and shipped the first version of the app in 2012. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So if you wouldn't mind uh, pulling back the curtains a little bit on some of your team process, uh, you know, if you'd be open to sharing a bit, do you use anything like Scrum or Kanban in your organization to manage the type of work you're doing on the engineering level? Yeah. Uh, so on the company level, we use a system called the Do System, which is uh, very much uh, a very liberal adaptation of the Agile method with some waterfall <laughs> aspects sprinkled in. It's a very high-level process, so, so it's really not what teams actually use on a day-to-day -day basis. So that is usually up to the teams. And we, have, we do have uh, some teams using uh, Agile processes, and we actually wrote a little bit about it, so I recommend visiting our blog. That's actually the last post we wrote about how one of our teams applies the Agile methods to you know, remote companies, because there are some things we, just, we really can't make work. An example is the daily stand-up. If you consider having people from all around the globe, across all of the time zones, you know, having a fixed hour per day where people get together, that's usually going to be uncomfortable for somebody. So we need to find other ways of working and some aspects of, you know, the pure agile methodology don't really work. So we have adapted some of those, but we wrote about it in the blog and I think it's super insightful. But going back to the question... We have a very flexible structure in which we do have a common process that we follow on a high level. So for example, our cycles have one month. Uh, we work on specific uh, features or improvements during that month. We follow a method where we work with, with uh, budgets. So you know, we look at, for example, we would really like to implement feature X. And for that, we would be willing to spend two months, right? So. We don't estimate necessarily. We kind of like budget it and then figure out what fits within that budget. And then for each individual team, they can use whatever process works for them. So we have small teams and some use Agile, others use you know nothing at all. They just kind of like self-manage. Um, so, yeah. So you're kind of in a way, uh, you know, you're using budgets and kind of like a time box around that. So like, what, what can we fit in two months or what have you? Interesting. Do you, as an organization, track any sort of metrics on the performance of your engineering teams? We do not. We don't track performance. We don't do performance reviews. We generally feel like performance reviews create uh, the wrong set of incentives, but we admit there is a gap uh, in our uh, thinking where, you know, Performance reviews also solve uh, you know, a real need, and which we're not solving right now. So we're kind of like taking advantage of having a somewhat small and productive team where these problems don't show up. So, but generally speaking, we would really like to find a way to, you know, where people are motivated to grow and they find ways to grow, but we're not necessarily working with the wrong uh, incentives. Earlier, you mentioned that you know you, you touched on touched on this idea that like in your pull request process. Um, Maybe like asking the team to, with a pull request, like we should like I don't know if this is like a checklist checklist of items you're looking for. If there's anything even maybe even automated that's like helping your team know if they're helping say by some percentage improve the the test suite with that pull request. Is there something that's happening behind the scenes in your process there? Like you have some technical solutions there that help do that, or is that kind of a when people are reviewing someone else's code that they just check for that as part of the process? I mean, I think machine work is for machines. So uh, everything that we can automate, we should really automate. So for example, of course, you can apply this for everything, but 
if you're looking to increase test coverage, you probably have a method of measuring that test coverage, right? So hopefully you can integrate this into your CI process so that you know when somebody opens a pull request and the test coverage somehow is reduced, the, the PR is blocked from being merged until fixed. But you can also apply this to other things. For example, I think a lot of companies over the last few years have been through transitions if they have iOS or Android apps from Objective-C to Swift or from Java to Kotlin. And in many, many of the teams I talk to, they really want to go all in on Swift and Kotlin respectively, but they have a lot of legacy code. They don't want to like just go in and change everything because that's time consuming and they can introduce errors where there are many right now. So that's another area you can automate, right? Like in your pull request process, you can make sure that you're increasing the ratio of the language you want to prevail in the end so that, you know, you're making sure that you're not, you know, stalling that progress. So I guess in general, there's a lot of things that can be automated and what can be automated should be automated because, you know, there's just a lot of tough problems for humans to solve that we don't need to be solving the machine problems. Yeah, that makes sense. Given that your organization is all distributed and remote, have you organized certain types of processes that help you with onboarding new recruits? And maybe this, I feel like I need to ask this question because I think when I'm, as someone that's primarily had a business that's where everybody's typically in the same office space on a regular basis outside of the last few months, um, how we onboard people to existing code bases we do a lot of pairing and things like that, but is, is there something, is, how, what does your process look like for introducing someone remotely into your code base and helping them get up to speed and them to feel successful? So that's actually an excellent question because since we are fully distributed, there's a lot of new ones to onboarding and making people, people feel welcomed and part of the team. I think our people ops team does an amazing job on the personal side of things of making sure people... Uh, feel welcomed and get the information they need. Everybody that joins Doist has a big checklist of things that they should be doing mostly over the first, you know, few weeks from uh, things like, you know, sharing 10 uh, interesting facts about yourself with the team and getting some engagement on that level and basically, you know, getting accounts for everything you're going to need to. So pretty much all the basics. From the engineering side, something we do is everybody has an explicit mentor so when they join, there's, you know, they get this buddy that will help them settle in and, and they can pretty much maintain a real-time conversation with them for a few months, even like whatever's needed, that person is there for, to help them. And something we started doing around a year ago, which I think has been instrumental to this, although it was not a primary goal at the time, is we are right now an organization that invests a lot into documentation of everything code, architecture, processes, values, whatever, like anything, we we're kind of like always uh, spending time documenting things. And this is really uh, great for new people joining because they can, they get to read about whatever, you know, they want. What is our decision-making process? It's documented. What are the things we value? It's documented. How is this code base structured? It's documented. How does CI work? It's documented. How do you deploy? It's documented. And it's, there's a lot of detail in these documents and there's documents about a lot of things. So I think our buddy system together with, you know, a strong process around documenting basically everything is really working out for new people joining Doist and helping them ramp up to feeling comfortable uh, in their new jobs. That's great. It sounds like you've, you and your organizations put a lot of thought into that. And, you know, like the buddy system is definitely helpful. Do you are you often bringing in, say, junior-type level developers or, and or interns into that process? 
Yeah, not often, no. We have done this in the past successfully and in multiple teams, but we generally look for senior developers, to truth be told. And I, I guess the reason is there's already, we feel like there's already many challenges in onboarding senior people. Just, you know, a lot of the things we discussed today, it's not how people usually work. People don't usually work fully in a fully distributed manner. Uh, people don't usually uh, steer away from things like daily standups. Uh, people don't usually work with a fully asynchronous communication. So, there's already a big set of challenges into making sure somebody uh, is able to adapt to the, you know, the new way of working in a way that's fulfilling to them and that makes sense to them. Bringing, you know, uh, the technicals also into play, which is, I mean, it's a worthy challenge and we want to onboard more junior people in the future, but it's something we have kind of like chipped out on, to be honest. Like, you know, it's kind of like, we don't want to deal with this for now. Although we have actually dealt with that across the board, but it's not super common, no. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's a, it's always interesting how, how different organizations are. I'm curious about that as someone that we're always trying to bring in junior people on a regular basis, at least, or even interns on a regular basis to help our more senior people work on their mentoring skills in particular is one of the benefits of that. But it's a, uh, every time I start thinking about how we do that remotely, I'm just like, I started scratching my head and I'm like, that feels really difficult. And I don't want to see a junior developer like just feel paralyzed because they don't want to bother someone remotely or something because they can't just go tap on a shoulder and be like, hey, can you come swing by real quick? So I just haven't figured that out in my in, on my end there. So if people listening have some good suggestions, I'd love to talk with you. And there's, and there's many, I think, you know, a lot of the existing processes which are great for junior people, like imagine pair programming, are things that we generally struggle with because, again, we try to make sure that all of our processes work across all time zones. So we don't actually do pair programming. It's very, very rare. Uh, so we use Loom, for example, to record screencasts that we share asynchronous with Lee with other people. Of course, we do that. We have very strong code review, code reviewing processes. But for example, I feel that juniors benefit a lot from pair programming with more senior people. And that's something that we can't realistically offer. So we need to look for alternatives. And this is an exercise we haven't done very deliberately yet. We'll be back with our interview with Guancalo in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Guancalo Silva. I want to talk a little bit more about process and get in the weeds a little bit. So when we talked about how making sure that you're constantly improving the code base, you know, I, what is your team's process or are there some consistent, as you mentioned that there's some different processes amongst different teams, but when it comes to things like with, for lack of a better term, like technical debt type challenges or things that are known that we need to take care of at some point and it's going to require some refactoring or something, how does your team organize and prioritize that type of work amongst say the product backlog? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. I think this is a constant struggle, a, a healthy one, I mean, but, you know, there's always this tension between different stakeholders on what's important. Um, as, like for us, uh, as I said a little briefly before, I think the most important thing is finding a balance where everything, nothing is really neglected. We are a product company and like most product companies, we spent our first few years you know, accumulating a lot of technical debt because we were just shipping, 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 shipping. Luckily, we never hit a hard wall like some companies do. But we did notice 
that our progress was slowing down a lot over time. I think this was especially apparent when we launched Twist just a few years ago, because suddenly we had a new project and we, it was very, uh, very striking difference between Todoist and Twist, how fast we, can, we could move in Twist and how much it was affecting us on Todoist. So it was, it was actually great timing for us to reflect on this topic. In the meantime, what we really started doing is being explicit about doing internal work, doing refactoring work, doing housekeeping work. So for example, on every cycle, we make sure that each team gets at least one due. Again, that's the, our unit monthly unit of work, as we discussed before. Uh, each team gets one internal due to work on whatever process, you know, pressing thing is going on internally. That might be refactoring, that might be improving the development setup, that might be CI or automation. So whatever they can reason about, also because we embrace a very transparent culture. So, you know, each team, they can work on whatever they need, but they also need to kind of like convey what this is for the rest of the company. So the marketing folks need to understand what's going on. As long as we can do this, you know, people have time to work on this on a continuous basis. And I really think that's the key. The key is always to move the needle in the right direction, even if you're moving it very slowly. So I think that's really what we embrace and, uh, uh, you know, the key to long-term success. Do you think that there's a... Amongst your teams, there's do they keep like a list of those types of items, or they just kind of like known knowledge of for the people that are working on it? And they could, if you ask them, they could probably rattle off a handful of things that they'd love to take care of at some point if they had the time. <laughs> I wish I could show you our backlogs. No, we keep we log everything. We log this on uh, regular backlogs, and even for uh, sometimes you know items can be higher level, like you know. For example, the architecture of this whole code base sucks. Uh, it's a bit hard to quantify. So for that, we also have some documentation again. Uh, so for example, I know some of the teams, our backend team, for example, has this awesome document in our internal handbook of you know things that suck in the backend code bases. And these things are not like super, super specific. And that's why they're documented in that way. Otherwise, they could just live in a backlog. But it's an awesome way to know and get an overview over of the big things that really the team is struggling with. Nice. I like that idea of maybe including something in the in a handbook too about things, it was even on an organizational level. Like here's some problems that you know when you bring people in, you're like maybe they won't notice that this part of the thing is really annoying. But also the fun thing about bringing on new people sometimes is how they'll highlight all the things that you're doing well. Because I think it's easy to point out all the things that you're struggling with as, as an organization or as a team. And you're like, oh, I, like, I've had people come and say, wow, your documentation is amazing here compared to everywhere else I've ever worked. And I'm like, really? Because I'm, I'm disappointed by it. So it's like, a, I'm like well, that's, that's good. I guess it could be a, like a relative thing. Yeah. And there's the reverse, right? Like uh, that's something I really like to ask newcomers after, usually after one month and then three months is, what is it that really sucks and we don't know about? Because... You know, there's this, this thing called creeping normality, and I'm always trying to be on my toes about it, of things we think are we're doing good and uh, we feel comfortable about, and they really suck. We just got used to them. So I try to poke newcomers for the reverse of that, which is, you know, what do you, you know, look around, what looks really stupid that we don't know about? And sometimes we get some really interesting feedback. That's great. That's a good suggestion there. And also for those listening, if you if you don't feel like you've had an opportunity to share that, I don't think there's any problem with you reaching up to your manager or someone to highlight some of those things because sometimes you kind of get stuck in the in that world there. Are there any processes that say ten years ago you would have thought, no way, that sounds overkill. We we'll, we don't need to do that. That you've since changed your mind about. There are many, um, many are coming to mind. 
but I will pick up on the on the hint you just left about talking to to your manager. I think something that's really effective is looking at things from uh, the business perspective. And so, I, ten years ago, I would say this is overkill to do for a lot of things. You know, for example, I would think that you know refactoring was pretty obvious for everyone. It needed to exist, and why it needed to exist? Well, it turns out that's actually not obvious to most people, even not even all of engineers. So, reasoning about things in a way that makes uh, uh, you know makes sense to most people is, I think, a super important. So, you know, refactoring in itself is not a goal, right? So, refactoring is a goal to improve something else, to improve. For example, through refactoring, you can improve your testing, so you can improve ultimately improve quality. Or through refactoring, you can improve your architecture, which ultimately improves your ability to make changes and improve the products. So we always need to frame things in a way that's understandable by business folks, by marketing folks. We sometimes need to get our heads off a little bit from engineering and focus on the primary business. And I think that's something that is super helpful when you're trying to drive change. Like if you need to talk to your manager because there's a piece uh, of the code base you want to refactor into something else, if you make a case based on what value that's going to bring to the business, and it doesn't need to be immediate value. Sometimes it can just be, you know, in the, we, we keep changing this part of the code. So in the future, we're going to be able to do this much, much faster and with less errors. And here's like an, even an estimate of what that could look like. That's going to make your manager make it much easier for your manager to buy in to whatever you're you're, you're wanting to do, and for the man, your manager's manager to buy in, and ultimately everybody else in the company. So, yeah, I mean, getting a little off of our uh, technical terms, which are comfortable and every, all engineers understand, and trying to think a little bit more in abstract uh, terms, it's it's like super helpful and something I really recommend everybody tries to do more often. And I definitely did not do this often enough 10 years ago. Do you have a lot of similar types of conversations about different, I'm assuming you have different code bases and different languages and such there for different platforms that there's sometimes those needs like different, like a different team will like a year or two later have a similar type of problem that the, another team had had a couple of years before. Does do you feel like there's enough, a, a lot of cross pollination and how to like present those ideas to, because if they've not been in that scenario of needing to like talk to the other stakeholders within within an organization and they're like, Oh, how am I going to convince them? Or they just keep saying not right now or not now, you know, cause they're like, whoever is making the decisions on, on what the priorities are right now. And sometimes there's people that will kind of give up on asking because they feel like they've like, well, I, I brought it up. I said, we need to do this. And they said, no, not right now. So I guess that we'll never do it. Do you have some advice for those types of people? But also with, you know, kind of my earlier point there being, have you seen that your team kind of your teams will kind of communicate with each other and give them you know some advice or learn from each other about how what worked effectively from like a communication perspective to different stakeholders? Yeah, I mean cross pollination is a challenge that we actually have not solved, and uh, I, I will admit every year we have a conversation of on the lines of we should share more, and we're still kind of like figuring it out all together. I think our huge documentation effort from you know, the last year or so is a bit in these lines. Like if we just over document everything and of course try to avoid having um, outdated documentation, which is a challenge we'll bump into at some point. Hopefully we can increase the odds that, you know, uh, whenever somebody is doing something we have that we have already tried somewhere else that gets documented and they find it somehow. But I'm really unsure if that's going to work out, hopefully. Are there some things that you've found in the last few years, like, you know, if you know, being being in the industry for a while now, there's a lot of tools. You know, we touched a little bit on metrics, and maybe your team isn't like tracking, 
you know, your teams of velocity, like some other teams might be doing. But in your terms of thinking about all the tooling that's a, that we have at our hand, you know, at our disposal now to use with our, do you feel like it's easier to work on software now than it was, say, 10 to 15 years ago with all these additional automated tools, to, or at least to come into the industry and wrap your head around everything? I definitely think it's easier, but it's also a bit more overwhelming, right? Like, I think nowadays, if you come into like most ecosystems, let's focus on the JavaScript ecosystem, you just get flooded with, you know, a bunch of different tools and frameworks that you're kind of like expected to use. And it's much, I think, much harder for a newcomer who doesn't know anything about this to get started and actually start, uh, you know, producing value. Um, I mean, I started working around uh, the same time that Ruby was released and a little bit later Rails. And I remember, you know, writing Rails new blog, and then you just you type just a bit of Ruby code and you had a blog. That was pretty magical, and, and you know, that Rails was the only tool I knew. I think nowadays, even Rails, it's a lot more complicated. There's a lot more moving parts, uh, and so I think the quality of things is much higher because of all of these moving parts. Basically, we're paying a lot of more attention to each individual. Uh, kind of like relevant part of a code base, but it also increases complexity in some ways. So I think it's much easier nowadays to do, to actually write good code. We have a lot of automation. We have a lot of great tooling, uh, but that applies mostly after you get comfortable with an ecosystem. Getting comfortable with an ecosystem today is arguably much harder, I would say, than uh, a few years ago because, yeah, there was usually one or two moving parts and now you easily get six, seven, eight of them and you need to get acquainted with all of them. They're not abstracted for you most of the time. So uh, definitely easier for most people, harder for newcomers. That would be, yeah. Let's say there's someone out there listening that's been, you know, maybe they're a couple years into their career as a software engineer. Maybe they're curious about becoming an engineer, but, you know, they're in that early era. Like now I, I see a lot of uh, engineers focusing on their portfolio or their GitHub profile page and like making sure they check off all these certain boxes to be recruitable. What sort of things do you think are valuable? What sort of advice could you give? Would you be giving your past former self of 10, 15 years ago, maybe early on in your career, on things that you should be focusing on a little bit more? And are there some specific tools and or metrics that you feel like they should be thinking most, mostly about? Is it is it an accumulation of a lot of different languages and tools and frameworks, or is it kind of diving in deeper into one specific area and, and kind of understanding that? I think we need both. So uh, there's a lot of value in having a, a horizontal understanding of the industry because m most times, uh, you know, some some folks are doing something really, really well and much better than everybody else. And it's great to know this exists. So I do think, you know, knowing one or two programming languages and frameworks and sticking with that for a very long time is a bad strategy. But I do think the exploration phase uh, needs to be short. So you shouldn't spend a lot of time, you know, jumping around different technologies because the best way for you to provide value to, to, to become an essential part of a team or of a business, it's actually to have very specific knowledge. You need to be great at something that you need to bring something unique to the table, right? That's what a great team is. It's a combination of individuals which bring great, unique things to the table and together they become, you know, more than the sum of their parts. So there are... This is definitely something that needs to be balanced. Going, you know, studying the market, seeing what options are out there so that you're aware of which tools exist. But then, you know, you should really become really, really good at one or two tools in your tool belt. And that those would be the areas in which you would grow the most. 
Although, as we know, our market changes all the time, right? So a lot of the tooling that was relevant uh, 10 years ago is not super relevant today. So we also have to keep an eye out for this and adjust as, as time goes on to, you know, grow with the market and mature. You know, in your experience, I know that you know you. I know that you were working on building things like early versions of Todoist, things like that. You know, when do you find that it's useful to like if you're diving into looking in different programming languages and different frameworks to understand like the basics of spinning up something new for the first time, or versus say diving into an existing code base at a company and feeling like excited about like just learning how to work within somewhat of a existing maybe potentially messy environment. I mean, there's definitely value in both, right? Like if you're diving into a new technology for the first time, definitely running through the new app Greenfield experience is very much worthwhile. Uh, There's usually most ecosystems have some kind of example uh, of things you could try out. Like I mentioned the Rails block uh, before, right? So uh, in Elixir, you usually have the chat room, which is, I guess, the classical example of where Elixir chimes. It's definitely worth trying these things because they show you the basics. And if you're learning just from documentation, it's a little bit hard, right? Like most people need a little bit hands-on experience. And while it's super important to look at real production code, because that, that will usually tell you how real code looks like. So it's not just a blog or a chat room. That can be very overwhelming if you don't have any kind of you know, you know, basics to fall back to. So I would definitely recommend mixing a little bit of both, like doing a little bit of research on, on, on the side, on the, you know, the basics and trying out a few things to get a somewhat of a deeper understanding than what the documentation alone provides. But getting to work on real production code is actually a very, very fast way to grow individually because, you know, uh, that code will definitely teach you a lot more than the basics will do, uh, at least initially. So as long as you can manage the overwhelming feeling of dealing with production code when you know very little, uh, that's a very much worthwhile investment. I think that's some really good advice for folks. So a couple of quick last questions. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in the industry? That's an, uh, a good question. So I, I knew this one was coming and I admit I spent an enormous amount of time thinking about this uh, because it's, it's, it's honestly hard to choose. But but I made a choice, and that would be uh, The Art of Learning by Josh Witzkin, simply because I think a lot of the things that we do in life, uh, in software, building products, are about learning things, right? Like, we need to learn things all the time. We need to learn programming languages. We need to learn frameworks. We need to learn how to communicate effectively across teams. We need to learn how to build a business. We need to learn how to, uh, you know build products that users love. There's just a lot of things that we need to learn and a lot of time we spend learning that actually I think some of the best investments that people can do is in the way they approach learning. And I think uh, this book by Josh really covers, I mean, it's a very engaging book. It tells his own story uh, around chess and uh, and uh, martial arts, but uh, the true message is about refining your process in learning, and he tries to teach this to the to the audience. And I think it's very much uh, worthwhile learning. And it's, this applies to software, and honestly, it applies to everything in life. And it's a really it's a really interesting book. Interesting, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. And you'd also earlier mention uh, Atomic Habits. I think was another book you'd mentioned in there as well. Yeah. Well, with that, uh, where can listeners best keep up with your um, thoughts on software development online? Well, that would be my Twitter account. I guess we can link in the show notes. It's a bit hard to say, to spell, but uh, I don't have a blog at the moment. So yeah, Twitter is usually the place that I, that, I, that I use the most to ramble about software. 
Excellent. And I think you mentioned that Duis has a blog as well. Like, is there yes. technical yeah. content on that? Technical content per se, no. But we do include some uh, content about the way we work. So, for example, our Agile experiments are documented there. Uh, the Duis system we discussed, it's also documented there. Um, why we don't have an exit strategy and what that means for the business, it's also documented there. So, you know, purely technical content we don't have. But we have a lot of content which should be interesting for software developers as well. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Montano and Concolo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Robbie. It was a great, great experience being here. 